This scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, and we'll be reading the verses 1 to 18. You'll be able to find that on page 1220 of your, book, uh, of your pew Bible. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The Word of God. Today we will be looking at the doctrine of Jesus Christ as true man and true God. And to aid us in that, we'll be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism from Lord's Day 6, which you'll be able to find on page 522 of your book of praise. So in the Lord's Day, just prior to this one, we were asked what kind of mediator and deliverer we sought. And the answer was, one who is true and righteous man, and yet one's at the same time true God. So our Lord's Day today begins with the question, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. Why must he be at the same time true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who is, at the same time, true God and a true and righteous man? 
our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back in 2012, one of the biggest youth movements in the last decade was launched by an organization named Invisible Children. This movement was called Coney 2012. Coney is a warlord in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC, and he's committed some terrible atrocities there. Now the plan with this movement was to make Joseph Coney's name a household name, to make him known globally and to have him captured by the end of 2012. Sadly, he still remains at large, but the movement carries on to today. It's national and international movements like this one that capture the fascination of our youth today. The idea of being young, yet powerful, being able to change the world is heady and intoxicating. In 2012, the desire of the youth to make a change was demonstrated by enormous youth rallies that took place across the globe. Graffiti of invisible children, slogans and symbols painted in cities across our nation, and stirring speeches made by politicians of every stripe. Such movements have not only caught the interest of those who are out there, but they have also caught the interest of our fellow young people on the home front as well. The desire of social justice, the desire for change to make the world a better place has led to all kinds of good things happening in our circles. Unfortunately, it's also brought with it another change. Because their passion has been ignited by enormous secular movements, Christian missions among young people today have been moving on a trajectory that's tended away from saving souls and towards saving the world. But our Lord Jesus Christ once said, what worth is it to you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? To change the world to want to change the world is a beautiful thing. And you young people especially, you have the drive of youth behind you. You have almost limitless energy at your back. You have a passion and a zeal. And rightly directed, you have an incredible amount of power. But that's the question, isn't it? Is it rightly directed? How do we have a balanced approach? In order to understand this, we need to look to the one who truly saves, who he is and what he does. And we'll do that today under the following theme and points. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. And we'll see, first of all, he saves us as true God, and secondly, he saves us as true man. There are a fair number of different sects and religions that take issue with the fact that Jesus Christ is God. If you consider Islam, for example, they are horrified 
by the thought. The Quran states, those who say Jesus, those who say God is the Messiah, the Son of Mary, have defied God. If they persist in what they are saying, a painful punishment will afflict those of them who persist. Jehovah's Witnesses argue that Jesus was simply the name of the archangel Michael while he was on earth. He wasn't God. Now, with regards to the second one, that's fairly easy. We just have to look somewhere like, to, to, to a passage like Hebrews 1 verse 5. There we read, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my God, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That alone would seem to be enough, but the author goes even further to remove any doubt, saying regarding the son in verse 13 of that passage in Hebrews, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? The answer to that question is none. Jesus Christ alone could claim that privilege. Having been humbled to the point of coming into the world in the flesh, Christ was then victorious and was once again exalted far above the angels where he is today. So there's no question about that. Not only do we recognize that Christ is not an angel, we recognize that he's far above the angels. But is that enough? What do we do when we see remarks like those from the Quran coming our way? For that, we can go right back to the Gospels. Our reading today in John 1, verse 1, particularly draws our attention. In the first chapter of John, we find the Apostle John modeling the opening words of his Gospel after the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, he says. Interesting, isn't it? John's intent is to make sure that his Jewish readers know without a doubt that he considers Jesus to be God. He begins his gospel by showing that the work of Jesus Christ in the beginning is the work of God in the beginning. God alone is the creator from the beginning. Jesus Christ is described here as the creator from the beginning because he is God. And so later in the chapter that we read, we read about Jesus with, he describes Jesus using these words. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's verse 3. Jesus is our creator and God. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. We're at the opening verses of our chapter. There we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word was God. So, who is this Word that he speaks of? John goes on to remove any doubt in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was the one who came down in that way, who walked among us. 
This word was Jesus Christ. The word that became flesh is Jesus Christ. But not only is he Jesus Christ, the word having become flesh, but we read that the word was with God and the word was God. He is God. He's the very one who is called in Matthew 1 verse 23, Emmanuel, the prophesied one. Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. He was the one before whom Thomas bowed down in worship and said in John 20 verse 28, My Lord and my God. He's the one described in 2 Peter 1 verse 1 as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's more. In case there's any doubt, in the, the final nail in the coffin can be found in the book of Hebrews, right between those two quotes that we read earlier regarding Jesus as being above the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1 we read, To the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not fail. There is absolutely no question with regards to this Son. God describes the Son as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, he quotes from Psalm 102, verse 25, directly tying Jesus in to Yahweh Himself. You Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. That quote there, although it doesn't look like it's a direct quote from our book of Psalms, because we draw it from the Masoretic text, it's a direct quote from the Septuagint. The author of the New Testament is drawing on the Septuagint, and the word Lord there within the context is referring to Yahweh himself. You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. He says that of Jesus Christ. You, Yahweh, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. This psalm plainly describes the nature of God as creator. There's no doubt that it's speaking about Yahweh, our God, the one who describes himself to Moses as, I am who I am. Without question, This psalm highlights the fact that Jesus is a member of the triune Godhead. Jesus is true God. Jesus is our God. But not only is Jesus true God, he's also true man. And this is something that not everyone agrees on. There were groups in the early church named the Gnostics who said that Jesus was just a spiritual being who seemed to take the form of a man, but was not actually a man. Our passage today connects with that. We read there, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Now, it's important for us to reflect on this because we too sometimes have this Gnostic picture of Jesus Christ in our heads. When we pray and we think about Jesus Christ the Son, we often have this picture of someone who is far removed from us. Someone who has no connection with us, who can't sympathize with us where we are. But our passage here, declaring the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, speaks differently, doesn't it? Jesus came down on earth and He humbled Himself, taking on the very nature of a servant of mankind and the flesh that He might redeem us. The Belgian Confession describes our state and what Christ took on when he took on our nature well in Article 18. It gives us a good summary. We read there, he truly assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities, without sin. For he was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by an act of man. He not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should assume both, take on both, to save both. And that's exactly right. We read in Hebrews 2 verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, so inasmuch then as we humans, the descendants of Adam, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Christ himself shared in our flesh and blood. Scripture declares to us that he was and is true man. The Apostle Paul further elaborates on this in Romans 1, verse 1 and following. First, he gives the introduction. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he has promised before, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then we come to concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. To be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the heir of King David, the Messiah who would save the world, it was necessary for Jesus Christ truly, legally, and physically to be a descendant of David. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a fulfillment of that prophecy. But it wasn't just because he was to be the descendant of the Hebrew King David to whom God had promised a descendant. It was because, as we read in Hebrews 2, verse 17, in all things he had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to share with us in all things. Now, you boys and girls might be wondering what propitiation is. It's a pretty big word. It's a pretty big mouthful. Propitiation is a payment to turn away God's anger by offering himself as a gift. It's said there 
in this passage, he had to be made like his brothers in all things apart from sin, sharing in their flesh and blood to be able to make payment for sin so that he could give himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God so that God wouldn't be angry with us for our sins anymore. There is, however, another beautiful benefit of Jesus Christ coming in this way. It's not the primary benefit we receive. It's not the most important thing we receive from Jesus Christ. It was necessary for the payment of our sin for Jesus Christ to take our flesh upon himself. And it was necessary for the payment of our sin for him to become a man. But there's another benefit that we have because of this. We read in our passage, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. He moved among us. He understood weakness. He understood hunger. He understood pain. He cried at his friend's grave. He was thirsty when he was on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew. He knew what it was like to feel alone, to feel forsaken by God. But more than that, he actually had it happen to him. He actually had it happen to him that it might not have to happen to us, that God would not have to forsake us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Beloved, Christ knew every aspect of this world. He experienced it with its kaleidoscope of colors. He felt the crisp coolness of the air in an early morning on his face. He experienced the joy of companionship and close disciples. And he felt the stab of betrayal. And it's this Christ that's in heaven. His becoming flesh meant that not only was he able to make payment for our sin, but it meant that he can share in our world. He understands us. He's not just true God sitting high above the world, dictating from his throne. We sometimes have this sinful tendency to write off God as not being able to sympathize with our weaknesses and shortcomings because he's God. How can he experience what I'm experiencing? But no, he experienced it all. So what does that mean for us? We have a God who cares about and who knows about and who is involved with all aspects of life. So, we, so as we are ambassadors of this great and awesome God who descended from heaven, who was the word become flesh, who ascended to rule and to reign, we're brought to recognize how he cares about every part of our lives. He loves us. He understands us. He cares for us. He died for us. And in recognizing this, we too are brought to care about all aspects of the lives of those around us as well. 
not doing good things because we're going to earn anything by it, but because it's a reflection of the God whom we serve. It's a reflection of our Christ who is involved with every part of us. The theologian Kevin DeYoung puts it well when he says, those who deal with the spiritual must not ignore the social. And those who engage the social must fully embrace the spiritual. What we don't want are Christians who admirably try to relieve suffering in this world but are indifferent towards eternal suffering. Every Christian engaged in mission, be it medical, educational, agricultural, or just plain being a good neighbor, should care about the real-life pain and long for opportunities to share the good news that every person needs to hear. And that's exactly right. We need to have a heart for people in their circumstances. But we can't focus on circumstance while being indifferent to the destination of the souls of those who are around us. We need to have a heart for our friends and our neighbors, for those who are around us. God is infinite, and when His wrath comes up against us, well, we can let Psalm 103, verse 3, speak to that. We read there, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one can stand before God in his wrath. The prophet Nahum puts it even more poetically, writing, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. If the seas dry up at his rebuke, and the mountains tremble, how can mere man stand before his wrath? The simple answer is that man cannot. And this is what we need to remember as we reach out in love to those who are in the world around us those who are in need around us, especially those who don't know Christ. Who can stand before the wrath of God? Man cannot, but Christ can. Fully God, He can bear the weight. Fully man, He can do it for us. And He does it because He cares for us, body and soul. So when we reach into the lives of our children, spouses, friends, and neighbors, of those who are close to God or those who are far from God, brothers and sisters, care about them. Care about their bodies, but also care about their souls. Care about them in all parts of their lives. Do so always remembering that there is a God who's perfect and just and whose wrath burns against sin and iniquity. And that those who stand against Him will face the fires of His infinite and eternal indignation in hell. But also do so remembering that God became flesh. That He walked among us. That He cared for our needs and He healed our sick. 
that he built relationships and he brought people to him in infinite love, that he suffered and died, and that those who believe in him do not need to face this end. Rather, those who face him and believe in him receive relief from their worldly sorrows and suffering. Those who believe in him will, and perhaps already partially do, partially do in this world, but they will fully in the next have all their tears wiped away. Walking in repentance and faith, they will have the love of Christ poured out on them. And looking with the eyes of faith, we look forward to living with him in eternity. We don't come to people bringing the word while giving them a cold shoulder with regards to everything else. But rather, through the power of Christ, we are able to live in our homes, our communities, and our worlds as those who welcome people in and who warmly love them with regards to all aspects of their lives. We live in our communities, our worlds, and our homes as disciple-makers in the full scope of that word. We live, in genuine, we live genuine lives of faith as followers of the way. We show them the undeserved grace that Christ poured out on us first. We model to them a better way as Christ carried out among us, directing them away from reliance on and building up the kingdom of self. We change by the power of the Spirit. And in doing so, we take the eyes of those around us off of ourselves and ever and always direct them to our Lord and Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. With these two natures of Christ in mind and with the attitude of Christ himself in our hearts, Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7, we enter into the world. And whether we have our feet hit the floor with plans to change the world, or we have them hit the floor with plans that go no further than our front door and taking care of the kids for the day, we can be impacted for eternity. And we can impact people for eternity. And we rejoice in the infinite love that would cause God to come down that would cause the world to become flesh, the word to become flesh. Amen.